Hi, I'm Chris Irwin. Welcome to The Come Up, a podcast that interviews entrepreneurs and leaders. I chose the kind of the safer Disney route. I needed a gig, I needed to pay the bills. But I made a promise to myself. Every day I saw someone else doing what I wanted to do. Be it like the absolute punks of the world, or you know, there were other people who turned the music blog into an A&R career or into leveraged it in other ways. I'm good at seeing gaps in the marketplace and where things are going. I made a promise. The next time I see it, I'm fucking going for it. This week's episode features Dan Levitt, the founder and CEO of Long Haul Management. Dan grew up in Boston with an early love for music and yet-to-be-discovered bands. So after repping a few acts in high school and interning at Philly radio stations during college, he kicked off his career by moving to L.A. with absolutely no job prospects. But after a few A&R gigs at Columbia Records and Disney, Dan was early to see how digital and YouTube were going to transform the music industry. So he left traditional media and kicked off his digital career, joining one of the early YouTube multi-channel networks, a company called Big Frame. We actually worked together there. And in less than nine months, I actually had to lay him off. Dan struck out on his own, positioned himself as the YouTube guy for the music industry, and started his own talent shop, Long Haul Management. Some highlights of our chat include how Dan paid rent while making only 6,000 a year when he first moved to LA. You'll crack up at some of his many side hustles. When he beat me in an office rap battle, executive producing one of YouTube's premium original series, and what it's like to represent some of the biggest sports and gamer personalities on the internet. All right, let's get to it. Dan, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I believe that you're a fellow East Coaster like myself. So tell me, where did you grow up? Sure. I'm from a nice uh, suburb of Boston, Newton, Newton, Massachusetts, like literally voted safest city in America, you know, back when I was younger. So kind of nice Jewish suburb of, uh, of Boston. Got it. It's funny. So I went to undergrad at Tufts in Medford, Somerville. And I think while I was there was rated one of the most dangerous, like mafia driven neighborhoods in the Northeast or all of US. So quite the opposite of you. And what was your household like? What were your family and parents doing? So one, you know, my parents both from South Africa, they moved to the U.S. in, I think, 77. So my dad went to school for engineering and then got a job in, in Boston and then eventually started his own software business that really had a bunch of ups and downs, mostly ups, and then fortunately sold to IBM right before kind of the big bubble burst there. So the timing was kind of fortunate. And then my mom was an artist. And so I had all kinds of, you know, different things she would do in the, in the art space, be it like theater, be it actual like prints and displays and stuff. Okay, very cool. It's funny. I've known you for about a decade and I had no idea your parents were from South Africa. Look, you're an entrepreneur. You've built out an incredible talent management firm. We're going to get to that in a bit. Yeah, but you have entrepreneurial yeah. roots in your family. It's interesting now, like I remember my dad would come back and I think I think I sort of maybe at the height he had 50, 60 people, maybe more. I remember like growing up, he'd come back from work and we'd be watching like a Celtics game. And it's like the most exciting game ever, especially they were really good back then. And he would fall asleep. And I'd be like, how could like how in the world could you possibly fall asleep during this game? And now I'm like, yep, I get it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I could totally, I could totally get how you can be so wiped at the end of the day that like no matter what is on TV, you're just like out. 
you know, I mean, what was really interesting is, you know, my parents went through a kind of a messy divorce. We don't need to get into that, but that's, that, that's a whole fun story. But what was interesting was he went from, when they separated, he, he stayed with a friend for a bit and he went from sleeping in the basement of a friend's house to selling his business to IBM in a year. And there were a lot of times that people told him, because the business had some challenges over the years, there were a lot of people who told him that he should declare bankruptcy with the business, but he kind of stayed with it. And eventually it worked out for him. I'm sure a lot of sort of the, hopefully some of the resiliency that I have kind of learned from him. Wow. Also, so I have to ask, being from Boston, a lot of media professionals from Boston have like have a pretty strong Boston identity. I think of Dave Portnoy in Barstool Sports and Bill Simmons from The Ringer. Do you think of yourself like that? Or you're like total West Coast transplant now? I think there's a certain, and it's not just specific to Boston, but especially in the Northeast, there's a certain intensity and I think an edge that you can have where in Boston in traffic, if someone cuts you off, you know, you, you scream at each other and that's just acceptable and that's how you vent, right? In LA, it's much different than that. In LA or on the West, you know, I'm in LA now. On the West Coast, people are more scared of confrontation. Yeah. Um, if you scream at someone, that's like a really big deal, <laughs> you know? And I think there's just a certain kind of like firm mentality that you have where like, it's pretty hard to bother me or get or get under my skin. I can, I kind of have thick skin. I do think part of that is just growing up in a culture where you know, people are sort of upfront with that. I also think to a certain extent, Growing up in cold climate where the weather is pretty brutal and you just have to plow through it does give some sort of mental toughness. I think that's totally right. I think there's a saying, I hope I'm not butchering it, but it's a, it's in New York when people say, fuck you, they're saying good morning. In the West right. Coast, when they say good morning, they're saying fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's but, but it's more so like I remember in one of my first PA jobs in L.A., I had sort of had a disagreement with another PA about the way things should be done. And then later on, I was sort of brought into the office by my supervisor. And they're like, Dan, you, you, you were screaming at them. Like, why? And, and I was like, I, I wasn't screaming at them. I was telling them something they didn't want to hear in a certain tone. If I was screaming at them, they would know. Everybody would know, <laughs> you know? And so that was really the first, you know, I just moved to LA and I was like, shit, I got to really be cognizant of how I talk to people out here. They're going to think I'm, I'm a fucking lunatic, which to a certain extent is true. But maybe maybe I need to kind of slow play that a bit. You it's know, it's part of your je ne sais quoi, as they say. About yeah, them. you know, and I think like, you know, I mean, you know me really well. But for, for people who just meet me, I can be a lot, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, so let's, let's actually talk about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I think trying to get a sense of like, was there a glimpse in your early days of you entering entertainment, becoming a talent manager? I think about things that you had mentioned that you were looking at unsigned bands in high school in the 90s. Tell me about that. My skill set is I'm really good at kind of seeing patterns and seeing where things are going, right, before they get there. So I think that's sort of what I'm best at, be it like entertainment or trends. You know, I've done okay in the stock market and investing and stuff. So specific to your question, yeah. So my first real strong passion was kind of music. I heard Green Day and it kind of changed my life. And I was like, this is it. And then I definitely have the personality type where if, I, if I'm into something, I'm like, all the way fucking in. So if I like Green Day, okay, I need every record they've ever had. And so I started, I don't know, the mid-90s or so. 
those started being music was starting to shift to digital, right? So you used to you used to discover bands on the radio, and then around that time, there started to be sort of primitive websites that around when Napster first came out, there started to be people who would put MP3s online, right? And so now here are these blogs that are hosting MP3s. And so they would be posting bands that were signed to record labels. And I would like these bands, you know, I'd find them, I'd like them, and then they'd get big a year later. I was like, oh, so I'm, I'm pretty good at knowing sort of which bands are going to be big later. And then one site in particular started focusing on unsigned bands. And I said, oh, these unsigned bands are really good. Like, I think they're going to make it. And then they would get signed and they would make it. And so I kind of saw, hey, I'm pretty good. I kind of, and I started, you know, learning more about the industry. And at that point, originally my job was to like, hey, I wanted to work as a music director on the radio, helping find the songs. And then I realized, hey, actually the best way I can help musicians is to like work at a record label. And so then it was my dream to like be an A&R guy to sign band and help them kind of break. And any genre focus, like what types of music were you listening to? Was it Green Day, punk, stuff like that? Uh, more like the new metal, like the corn. And I know, I know you're obviously a huge Limp Bizkit fan, like that kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff. $3 so like, bill, you know, Sure, exactly, right? So ar- around that time was like the Lincoln Parks of the world and, and, and that kind of stuff. That was really the the scene I was into. I, I still had a sort of an appreciation for more pop music and stuff like that, but really the like rock, I would say, was the genre that that I was into and certainly having a great moment then. Yeah. So then there were a few sites and I remember trying to like email people and bands and managers and see what I could do. But, it was, uh, you know, I was just a kid in, in high school. And again, this is like I'm downloading songs over a dial up modem. Like, <laughs> you know? like DSL. This was not. This, yeah, exactly. This was not how easy it was today. So that was sort of the dream, but you know, I didn't know anyone in entertainment. There was no path to it. I was like, could I start my own record label and fund it? But that seems so far from being like feasible. Yeah. Were you reaching out to any of these bands direct or is it just like kind of you just thinking about what you want to do after college? Yeah. So I had a buddy from summer camp who was at the same time, this is the late nineties, maybe or he started interning at, at, at record labels in New York and started getting a bit of traction. And so we we were talking about, hey, maybe we should start our own label. And there were one or two bands that we approached and kind of like, <laughs> they didn't really respond. Oh, I, 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 did, I, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear the pitch of like you pitching a band in high school to sign with you. I forget what it was, what, what the kind of the value proposition was, but that band didn't really go anywhere. They probably should have given us a shot. <laughs> You're doing this in high school and then you end up going to Temple University in Philly. And so does the dream start to take form there? What happens? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to be a bit more conservative. And I was like, hey, I know I want to get into entertainment. I know I want to be on, on the business side. Like what's interesting to me is sort of the intersection of art and commerce. But these jobs are going to be really hard to get. So as sort of a, a background, why don't I get like a business degree just to like give me some kind of stability and, and, and baseline of knowledge. So I went to school. A temple, there's all kinds of story. Like, you know, like my dorm room burnt down freshman year. Just the craziest shit happened. Wait, you know? what, like, was that, did you cause that or was it somebody else? No, no, that, well, the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a point of contention. My roommate was lighting candles for some reason at 10 in the morning, but the fire marshal said it was my electrical outlet. You know, it's a whole thing. Um, but anyways, you know, while at temple, I'll, and, and actually before I left, I interned at a radio station in Boston that I interned at at radio stations in Philly because that was really the only, you know, there weren't record labels in, in Boston and uh, at least that I was aware of and in Philly. So I kind of just interned in radio in hope that I could kind of make my way up there. But then I saw, man, the radio jobs. I mean, and this was back then. I can only imagine now. 
radio is not glamorous at all. It's really bare bones. The budgets are next to nothing. Like no one leaves these jobs. The jobs were, didn't pay great. So I kind of realized, hey, I thought I wanted to do radio, but I, I this is not for me. And then that was more like, okay, I, I want to work for a record label. You know, that was kind of the dream to be an A&R guy. In graduating Temple, which I think is around 2004, do you go immediately? Do you have a job lined up? Like you're going to a record label, you're pumped going to the big city? I don't know why I wasn't really like actively going, like hustling for a gig. Like I, I guess I assumed, oh, the college will like set up some interviews and stuff. Nothing. So a couple of my buddies went there, like Temple has a really good film program. So most of my friends actually weren't on the business program. They were more on the, on the film side. And so a couple of my buddies were moving out to LA to kind of get started in their careers. And so I, I knew that the music industry was, you know, at that time was really New York or LA. And I just like, you know, the last winter in Boston, the high was like eight degrees, you know, <laughs> and I, and I'm not yeah. one to complain about the cold, but I was too fucking cold. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, do I move to New York with no gig where it's crazy expensive and the weather's brutal or like, maybe I should try LA, you know, and see what it's like over there. And so I moved here kind of without any job and hoping that I'd kind of like figure it out. So you're showing up without a lot of savings, no clear job prospects, moving with a couple friends, but don't really know anyone on the West Coast. So there's kind of like a timeline here where it's like, hey, I got to figure something out probably in the next couple months, right? Totally. Maybe a couple grand. And just like, thankfully, at least rent back then was a lot less than it is now. I think me and my buddies got, got like a house in the Glendale Eagle Rock, maybe Eagle Rock area for four glassell park for maybe a thousand between us three it was pretty inexpensive so i had some cost but i had I, you know I, I had a little bit of room to work with there yeah so you show up with you know maybe a couple suitcases you're in la what's your mentality are you pumped are you excited are you also scared and then like what do you start doing to sow your roots Really, it was just like, okay, like I have a business degree. Surely I can get an entry level job somewhere yeah. doing marketing and just nothing, barely interviews, like fucking nothing. So I was just like, all right, let me just a couple of my, my buddies started PAing. So I, I did some PA gigs, but like even in those gigs, you really have to hustle. You have to network and like a gig ends and then you've got to get another job and you got to keep getting it. And then that one ends, you got to get another job. I didn't really want to jump from job to job. There's late night shoots. It would mess up my sleep schedule. So I was a much different person. I was a lot lazier. I kind of, I didn't think things would come to me. I just thought it would be easier. It's funny to hear you say that because who you are now, who I have seen you evolve from since the big frame days in 2013, right? When you left, you are like such a go-getter, like eye on the ball, laser focused, massive hustler. And so I guess this was a, an important experience for you to kind of train that muscle and change your mentality. So for some background, like I am not a type, like now I'm probably type A, but I promise you I was not type A. Like for context, I don't know what my GPA was in, in high school, maybe like a 2.3. It was not good at all. <laughs> Like at all. Yeah. I was a bad, I was a bad student. I like, for context, in second grade, I already wasn't doing homework just because I couldn't be bothered to do it. I could do it. I was like, I could pass everything and do it well. I just, for some reason, I just, it wasn't interesting to me. And so probably wasn't until sort of like after I left Big Frame when I really had to figure stuff out for my own that I had to like really flip that switch and become that person. But it was not, there's some people who are just like born type A and that's been a constant evolution for me. But your first job, 
You do get an A&R job at Columbia Records, which is part of Sony Music, I think in March 2005. So how'd that come to be and what was that experience like? Oh, this is a great story about how this ends. The buddy I mentioned earlier who was interning at, at record labels, he was able to move up. I think he was actually probably the, the youngest A&R guy in Sony history, at least at the time. He helped get John Legend signed in, in Coheed and Cambria. And so after uh, John... Favorite after band, he, Coheed and Cambria, like yeah, Jersey man. band and like the metalcore punk-ish type scene. Love them. Yeah, so I think that was one of the first things he got signed. And then after he helped get John Legend signed, who they had passed on maybe five or six times, then they started like, oh, like maybe we should listen to him, you know? And they And he kind of got promoted. And at the time, the music industry was really going through an interesting transition then because... This is 2005, so this is kind of after the height of the boy band and rock, like CD sales are declining now relative to all-time highs. So what was happening was you were seeing a lot of executive turnover. So a lot of the execs who got these amazing lucrative deals in the good old days were getting let go or not renewed. So there was a lot of turnover. So what happened was at that time, most of the A&R people for Columbia Records were in New York, but they needed someone lower level in LA to go see shows for them. Because especially at that point, the live show, especially in, in rock and other genres, is a big part of a, a band's success. And so they didn't really have anyone lower. And my buddy knew that I was still kind of hustling. I'm working retail at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm working at the vitamin shop just like just to pay the bills, right? Because I didn't want the hustle of the, of the random PA gigs. Keep in mind, I'm still applying for marketing jobs at like a Nestle's and other sort of more consumer yeah. products. I'm applying in entertainment too, but the, everyone is like entry level, you know, and this is even worse now, an entry level job that, you, you know, they want you to have experience. I'd be, I didn't have any work experience. I had a couple of internships, but not, you know, so I'm just working retail. And so my buddy is basically able to get me a job working for Columbia Records, but part-time, right? So I'm basically working at the vitamin shop during the day. And then at night, going out and doing A&R for Columbia Records, albeit in, in a part-time capacity. And I'm just fucking praying that no one I know from the music world comes into the store. And so it's really like a one foot in, one foot out. And, I, and I'm basically just trying to do what I can to find the next great act for them to sign so that I can get recognized and that I can do this full time and quit the soul-sucking day job. How much were you making as an A&R exec at this point? I might have been making maybe 125 a week. So I think it was definitely between six and seven grand a year. So not by any means enough to pay the bills, but not, not terrible, especially back then as a side. And keep in mind, if you look at it from an hourly perspective, I'm not really doing much. Maybe I go to one or two shows a night. And by the way, like I'm on the guest list for shows. I can walk into the Viper room and the, and the people there know me. I can just go in. So I'm, I'm seeing amazing shows. I'm meeting people in the industry. I'm meeting managers. I'm meeting ever. Meanwhile, anyone I meet, I'm trying to see if I can work with them. And like, you know, I'm applying for job after job, like entry level, like manager assistant, 24,000. I'm applying at this point. I have Columbia records on my resume and still like not even like barely getting bites. And even then not for whatever reason, I wasn't getting the gigs. It was a really, really tough time. It's worth noting. This was before kind of the tech startups. This is before SoundCloud. This is before some of the first kind of music startups. So there really wasn't much opportunity to get a gig somewhere. You know, I interviewed at some of the music marketing companies like Streetwise and things like ones that were sort of like, this is like building street teams and digital street teams. I wanted to do all that shit. And, and I had some experience and still couldn't get in. 
Columbia Records. So I'm doing it. So one, I pitch, like it's like kind of laughable now, but I sort of discovered Arctic Monkeys extremely early. They only had three songs online. No one had heard of them in the U.S. No sales, nothing. And so I, I have a bunch of buddies that I would kind of send songs to. This is when the strokes were kind of like first hitting, right? So I find them on one of the music blogs that I like. These songs are like, I'm into them, but I don't love it. I send it to a bunch of buddies and like universally, every one of them were like, this is the best thing you've ever sent me. And I was like, really? Wow. So then I pitched them to Columbia Records and they're like, oh, like this is kind of cool. It's like this cool indie rock thing, but it's, you know, it's three guys in the UK. There's no sales. There's no history. It'd be really hard for us to fly them back and forth. But like, you know, thanks for bringing it up. And I didn't really know that I had to like, keep following up hey like there's there's starting to be some noise i didn't know like no one taught me how to do a and r or how to pitch or how to kind of follow up and i was you know again it's not like i'm going into an office i'm i'm just remote because I, I still have the day gig so anyways eventually there were arctic monkeys and you know lily allen a few things that i pitched that ended up hitting eventually and then it got to the point where Sony Music was having a weekend where they were bringing in every Sony Music employee to New York to do this whole sort of like, you know, song and dance about their, you know, the roster. So I basically request vacation time from my day gig to go to New York. And I'm, I'm getting flown. Again, Columbia Records is paying me 125 a week, <laughs> a week, but they fly me to New York and put me up at a fancy hotel. It's like, it's like you know, half your salary. This, oh, but no, it's, it's by far, like, they spent way more on this. And then, I mean, and so anyways, it was like a weekend in Greenwich, Connecticut with like the A&R team. And so I get called into the head of A&R's office on the Friday. It is like, hey, Dan, I have some great news for you. Thanks for everything you've done. We're going to make you full time. We're just waiting to hear from accounting on how much that's going to be. We're like, we'll get back to you. And I'm like, this is like what I've been fucking working my whole life for. And then right afterwards, we get on the bus to go to Greenwich, Connecticut. And like Columbia had just brought on Steve Lillywhite, the producer who produced all the big U2 records, Dave Matthews, like albums I fucking grew up on. I'm like shooting the shit with him now. We go to the head of the label's house and there's like all these like corn and rage against the machine and all these albums that were like so meaningful to me, all the plaques. And it was a weekend where I felt like I was one of them now. Like my whole life I've been trying to get in and now I'm finally in. Still to date, one of the best weekends of my life. Wow. And then I fly back and it's Monday and I'm back in the day job. And I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for the phone call. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the phone call about how much more money it's going to be. I'm so fucking ready. I get the call. Hey, Dan, we have some bad news. We're not going to have room for you anymore. Sorry, but thanks for everything you've done. Wow. Just like fast like that, almost like no emotion, just boom. No, no. He was like, you know, to his credit, he was really apologetic. But I was fucking shell-shocked because the call I got were like, I thought, okay, this is the phone call. I'm about to quit. I'm about to quit the day job was like just the carpet ripped out from under me. I had the day job, but at least I was grinding at night, hoping to get somewhere. Now that was taken from me. And now I'm like, fuck, I'm about to be 25 with a business degree working retail. This is not how I thought shit was going to go. And so it ends up being revealed later on. You know, it wasn't clear at that time, but basically Columbia Records was bringing on Rick Rubin and he wanted his own people. You know, so, but it was just a gut shot at the time. So Dan, you get into a few side hustles and I think one of them culminates in you doing chat room marketing for cream cheese. But tell us a couple highlights here because I think 
some of these side hustles like swap meets is still involved in your life today. It's always fun for me trying to figure out new ways to make money. It's a lot easier now with like the internet and stuff. It, it, it wasn't back then. So I would do, I was a big focus group slut. You know, I would do anything, promote anything. So I would get really good at filling out focus group surveys and I knew sort of how they wanted it to answer. And so I would do, for example, I've been paid to eat tofu. I've been paid to eat gum. I've been paid to eat McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. I got paid to play the Xbox Connect before it came out. I've been paid to look at marketing materials. I've been paid to play with phones and gadgets and look at Cirque du Soleil, all kinds of stuff. So it, especially in LA, I'm sure this is maybe the case in a lot of big cities, but there's a lot of companies that do focus groups both in person and I was just like a maniac. There were a few Twitter accounts that popped up from those like, hey, if, hey, if you're this and you're this, fill it out. And so I would just, whatever I could to try to get in. And, and this was paying the bills for you. So this was important. I think one year I made maybe eight grand doing it. Wow. You know, my first couple of years in LA, I, made, I might have made only 20, 20, 30 grand. So it was pretty significant. There's kind of like a, a store in LA that on Sundays would sell clothes, some vintage, some new for a dollar. I would go and I'd buy most of the men's stuff. I'd list it on eBay. Basically anything I sold it for was, was profit. I ended up like getting fired from the vitamin shop. That's not really an interesting story. So there was a company doing sort of, so this would be summer 2008. They were doing like kind of experimental digital marketing. And so they were basically going into chat rooms, essentially spamming message points. But then also you had to have sort of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people where you'd have to work in talking points, which like was really fucking hard, <laughs> you know, to, uh, especially like how do you kind of work cream cheese into a, a, a conversation organically, but I got fucking really good at it. And so within two days, I got so good at it that by the end of the first week, I was promoted to the night shift manager. So you would sort of drop the campaign talking points into the chat, but really it was all about these one-on-one -on -one conversations because the basically this agency would take those conversations, chop them up, make them clean, and then share it with the brand and sort of like, hey, look, we're sort of doing this subtle marketing for you. What was one of the lines that was like something that you custom crafted that you were known for? This is really interesting psychology. What everyone else would do was they would try to hit up a million people to try to find one and, to, and try to work it in. They would kind of brute force it. I took the opposite approach and I was like, I'm going to ask other people online about themselves. And then just as conversations go, they'll flip it and they'll ask me about myself. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, you know, but like one of the common questions, oh, what do you do for work? I'm not going to say the brand's name, but it's a city where I went to school, you know, but it's like, hey, we couldn't say I work at, we have to say I work with X cream cheese company. Oh, really? I love cream cheese. Cool. And then it's like, oh, what do you use it on? Oh, have you used it for, you know, cheesecakes and stuff like that? Or there was another site that was kind of harder to use, but you could actually see people's like images. Think like MySpace era. So it wasn't MySpace, but similar. So I would identify people that I thought, uh, based on certain physical attributes, might be interested in cream cheese. And I kind of just messaged them and chat with them. But man, that was one of the funnest jobs I ever had. More so because as a guy, it's, it's not so bad. You're mostly talking to, you know, to girls. As a girl on the internet, trying to talk to guys about cream cheese, the kind of shit that they would hear was just like... Probably a, a dark rabbit hole that we will not go down. So Dan, then you had to A&R at Disney around September 2008. How'd that come to be? My roommate used to do HR for Disney, mm. right? And so keep in mind, at this point, actually, I'd left the cream cheese job and I'm working in a movie theater 
making eight fifty an hour. I got, I got my side hustles, but I, you know, so I see a job posting for kind of A and R coordinator, and I ping my roommate, and I'm like, "Hey, do you know the recruiter for this gig?" And he did. It was like someone he used to work closely with. So I was able to like customize my, you know, my resume, and it went directly to the recruiter, sort of from from a friendly. And I remember the weekend I saw the job. I was in Chicago for a wedding. And I remember like holding back my friend for an hour so I could I could tweak it before we went and got and got pizza. So I applied on a Friday, and then I got back and basically like I think that day they called the recruiter called I had a phone interview, and basically the next Friday I had a gig. Wow, that moved very fast in contrast to other stuff. Unheard of for Disney, and the salary was like in the mid forties. Like again, like I had a Columbia Records gig, but it, it paid next to nothing. And now I have an A&R job at Disney with a real fucking salary and amazing benefits. And it happened so quick. And I'd been out here for five years grinding, just grinding. Did you feel you had made it at this point? Like I've made it, I'm here. It wasn't that I made it. It was that I made it out of retail. You know, <laughs> okay. like I, to this day, I, you know, and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with working retail. I did it forever, but I don't want to do it again. You know, I don't want to interact with the public, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how fast it happened. And just like, you know, like that, my whole world changed. So I was so appreciative and so thankful to have a gig that provided some stability that wasn't in the industry that I wanted. You meet someone, you tell them that you work for Disney, it changes the perception of you, right? So, and certainly for me, who'd been trying to get a real like industry gig, it, you know, it was finally like, I knew that I kind of had the chops and it was like, finally someone kind of recognizing it. Hey listeners, this is Chris Irwin, your host of The Come Up. I have a quick ask for you. If you dig what we're putting down, if you like the show, if you like our guests, it would really mean a lot if you can give us a rating wherever you listen to our show. It helps other people discover our work, and it also really supports what we do here. All right, that's it, everybody. Let's get back to the interview. After this, you end up going to call it like the YouTube revolution at Big Frame. So I'm just curious, while you're at Disney, was there anything about like emergent media, digitally native artists that you were focused on during those four years? Trying to sense a through line here. After I left the Columbia Records gig or got like, oh, I kind of saw, you know, I saw these people who had these music blogs that were starting to build their own sort of reputations as tastemakers. And so I kind of thought, oh, maybe I should do that for myself. Maybe like instead of me working for a record label and being a tastemaker, maybe I should do that on my own with my own blog or something, but I didn't really have the technical prowess to do the, the blog stuff. It, it, it seems like, oh, it should have been easy. It was not, blogs and stuff were not easy back then. And so I actually, I started doing online video. I bought an HD camera. This must've been very early YouTube days, but I actually, with a buddy, like recorded some like HD music industry podcast where we talked about music industry news and stuff. But I think I would post it on YouTube, but sadly and stupidly, because YouTube didn't monetize then, I put it on Rever, where they did monetize. R-E-V-V-E-R was sort of a YouTube competitor at the time that did monetize. And I was like, oh, I, I want to make money doing this. 
So even though there's more audience on YouTube, I put it there and, you know, nothing happened that I didn't, it was hard, you know, relying on on my buddy, you know, who was great to to kind of schedule this. And so I I didn't stick with it, but I was kind of doing it semi-consistently. But then when I got the Disney job, I sort of asked if I could continue doing it. And they're like, no, you're doing A&R for us. You obviously can't be talking about, you know, acts that aren't signed to Disney. So I kind of put that on the side and then I saw the early podcast boom. Like, again, I'm listening to Bill Simmons. I'm listening to Corolla kind of saw the podcast thing happening. And so while I'm at Disney, especially, you know, I'm a couple years in and it was a decent job, but, you know, my department was pretty strict. I wasn't given sort of the freedom that you would think an A&R guy would have. It was a lot more administrative. It was a glorified assistant, right? It wasn't like an A&R role. And they really, they truly did not care about my opinion for, for acts in my estimation, especially the, the label side. I worked for the publishing side and I tried to kind of get in with the label guys and it didn't really work. A couple of years in, I'm starting to think, okay, I got to get out of here. I, and this was great, but I'm like, I'm going to be a 30-year-old A&R guy who's never got anything signed. And if I lose this gig, and again, this is the industry, especially 2008, 2009, 2010, sales are going way down. You know, this is when streaming is just starting. So I'm trying to meet whoever I can, right? And so actually, this is when SoundCloud first starts. I was up for a gig there. I had some friends kind of record some messages recommending me. I had a great relationship of amazing songwriters and artists that I was an advocate for that hadn't really made it or, or were just starting to. I try to get a job at Songkick and all these things that were starting. I actually like try to get a job at Spotify. I'm actually one of the first 500 people in the U.S. to have a Spotify account. I had an account for two years before it launched. I think what I'm hearing is that you've also applied to every single music company, I think, in the world by this point. Yeah, but especially the good ones, right? So like I loved what SoundCloud was doing. Really, at the time, they were so innovative and, you know, they were solving a big problem, which was hosting audio. And so the role that I wanted was helping sort of artists get on the platform and kind of figure stuff out. And so around that time, again, I always kind of believed in YouTube. I was doing it for myself. And then obviously Justin Bieber broke and, you know, I'm kind of looking on YouTube and I'm seeing these kids who are doing kind of mid-tempo acoustic ballads because that's kind of all they can do because that's what you do when you start but they were doing covers and building an audience. And I was like, their originals aren't that good. And I know all these amazing songwriters and producers that aren't getting cuts in the major label system because it's a fixed game because the, the heads of the A&R start separate publishing divisions and those people get the singles. So I was like, what if I actually brought some artist development into this YouTuber space where these people, have, they've done the hardest part, they've built an audience, right? And so there was one day on Twitter, the YouTube creators account on Twitter posted that they were they were having an event at um this is before the youtube space at youtube's offices where they were talking about sort of what makes a video successful on youtube i said oh i should like that will probably be good for me to know and i went and you know sarah from big frame who we both know well was on the panel and she was talking about how she started a business and she's managing youtubers and i was surprised that this was a thing that there was enough of a business for their to be managers and not only that like really smart like sarah is really impressive and I was like, wow, this is, this is wild. You know, I, I had no idea it, like if this kind of scene was happening. And then someone else actually asked about music. What should the labels do? And she, and Sarah was like, oh, the labels, and they have no idea what they're doing at all. And then I went up to Sarah afterwards. I was, you know, I worked for Disney music. She's like, oh, I, I'm so sorry. I was like, oh no, you have no idea how right you are. And actually like for an anecdote about how truly out of touch 
Like in my experience, they were. So again, through my relationships, I was one of the first 500 in the U.S. to have Spotify. Because Spotify had their agreement. They had a few test accounts for people in the industry to get to try. So I had one. I went to the head of like maybe the number two at Disney Music. And I was like, hey, I got, I got this cool thing, Spotify. Like, have you seen it? Have you tried it? Do you want an account? He was like, oh, yeah, I'm not worried about that. I'm like, you know, I don't need one. <laughs> and I was like, it was so clear to me that like this was the future. And they yeah. like, you know, couldn't be bothered. And even like, again, I'm still kind of green, right? But like, I saw that, hey, by the way, when they did the Spotify deal, Universal was distributing Disney, right? Universal got equity, Warner got equity, Sony got equity, Disney didn't get equity, but Universal leveraged the market share for distributing Disney for equity in Spotify. And I like asked them, like, why did you do that? And they didn't, they like, I'm a fucking coordinator and I'm like, and you don't have any, like. You're, you're seeing where the industry is headed and you're like the vision at the top of Disney or particularly for the Disney music division, they just don't get it. And so you're like, they're not going to get it at your level. You're not going to be able to influence them. So you're saying again, like I got to make a move. I got to get out of here. The future is changing and I want to be a part of it. I think the big thing was I saw what happened in podcasts and I kind of had to choose. The, I didn't have to, but I chose the kind of the safer Disney route, right? Because I needed, I needed a gig. I needed to pay the bills. But I made a promise to myself. Like every day, I saw someone else doing what I w- wanted to do. You know, like being like the absolute punks of the world, or you know, there were other people who turned the music blog into a, an A and R career, or into leveraged it in other ways. And all these podcasts kind of blown up. And I promised myself. I was like, I'm good at seeing gaps in the marketplace and where things are going. And I made a promise. The next time I see it, I'm fucking going for it. I love that. And that's why when I met Sarah and when I saw it, I was like, this YouTube thing is fucking next. No one in the music industry realizes it. Let me get in. At worst, like I knew, I knew after that conversation with, with Sarah, as a follow-up, we, we kind of had lunch somewhere. And after that conversation, like, like I was like, Sarah, like hire me. She's like, I can't now, but like, we're doing a race soon. Let's stay in touch. Then afterwards, I was like, this is fucking it. I fucking know it. I need to like, I need to get in here no matter what. So I started being like very aggressive. And this was probably, thinking of Big Frame's timeline, the company was founded in, I think, the second half of 2011. And they officially raised funding from the Google Original Channels program and a seed round, I think, in early 2012. And you come in in the second half of 2012. But yeah, they had to get, Sarah's talking about they had to get funding lined up. And I joined Big Frame, I think, in July of 2012. But at this point, after I have lunch with Sarah, I'm like, okay, this is it. I need to get into this space, right? And so at the time, there were three companies, right? There was Maker, there was Big Frame and Full Screen. Those were the three big ones, right? And so I basically, when I kind of stepped back, I kind of looked at, at, at the time, Maker was far bigger and kind of the like the hot company at that point, right? The one that had the most buzz, the one that had the most resources and stuff. So I decide that I want to, Sarah's great, but let me see if I can get a job at Maker. I have a meeting with whoever's running their music department. And this guy, he was cool. He was okay, but like did not have the level of sort of sophistication or music knowledge that, that I had, right? And, and I think especially it's worth considering like at this point, this space is so new. There's no one with Sony and Disney A&R, like the level of traditional music in the space at all. But I decided I'm going to go for it. So anyways, I, I meet with them. It's a decent interview. And then I decide I really want to go out of my way to show them that I sort of like want this, right? So at the time, Maker had 100 employees. So the next day, I send over 100 Krispy Kreme donuts to the Maker office 
with a note, let's make sweet music together. <laughs> How did that touch work out for you? I got a second interview, you know, like, like, like literally people in Maker are, are like tweeting about it, right? And I thought like, look, look, like at worst, at worst, it'll be memorable and maybe they'll think about me in the future. And at best, if I get the gig, everyone's going to like me from day one because I'm the donut guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. And again, like, I'm real fucking desperate to get out of Disney at this point. Like, I see the writing on the wall. Especially, one thing to mention is that at this time, we're talking 2012, the music groups had, the publishing division had merged with the record labels. And essentially, the head of one of the record labels was now the new music group boss. And I had been through the Sony, I was at Sony after the Sony BMG merger, and I saw people getting picked off one by one. And I saw the same thing happening in publishing. I said, this was a merger, the record side won, and the publishing people are going to go one by one. And as soon as I saw the first domino fall, I was fucking on it. So I definitely feel like there's an axe going over my head, slowly descending. Yeah. So if the timeline is compressing, you got to make moves. Okay. So after, after Disney... Do you then apply to Big Frame? What happens next? Yeah, so eventually I end up, I apply to Big Frame, I meet you. You said that you sent a video as part of your application, right? Right, so there was a job, I think after Google acquired Next New Now, they had a sort of a, a, a strategist role that I applied for that I didn't get. But I knew that if you looked at my resume, you would see traditional media. And I really wanted them to understand that I got digital culture. So I sort of made a video in addition to my resume, like a, a kind of fun video that played on the sort of the memes or the trends on YouTube at the time. So I was, you know, the video was like, I was like, hey, I'm a big fan of YouTube. It's not just people doing, you know, the cinnamon challenge. And then it cut to me doing that, you know, or, or getting hurt. And then, I, you know, it's me getting hit by like, you know, 20 dodgeballs from, from different angles. Okay, I actually think I like vaguely start to remember this now. Yeah. Oh my God. I kind of just knew, I knew that, Especially having applied for so many gigs at traditional companies and not getting like my resume seen, I wanted to make sure that in the future when I applied for a job, I was being extra. You know, I was really going out of my way to show that I was serious about it. And also, especially with digital, that I got the culture, that I got the space, that I'm not some stuffy guy. I really wanted to kind of show that I was a believer in the space and to kind of differentiate myself. And Sarah actually told me after I was hired that like the video did sort of to ease some of her concerns that I was going to be a more stuffy music guy. Because especially at that time, the music industry and the MCNs, it was really contentious, right? With Sony and, and some of the publishers seeing, you know, having seen MySpace grow and build and get a huge valuation. It was very much any new uh, emerging trend, the music industry sees as a threat. And that dates back to sheet music, but that's a separate tangent. Well, and, and to be clear, at least from my vantage point, I don't think there was any worry that you were going to be a traditional stuffy music guy. Because I remember, I think, yeah, this is me and Jason Zemanski were working on building out the different like content verticals for Big Frame. So Which was so smart to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so smart. So we had Wonderly. We had Forefront. We also had a music vertical. We had an LGBTQ vertical and maybe like one or two more. So I think, yeah, we're thinking about music. And I remember I'm in the back room. This is when we were on the Sunset Boulevard office, the old National Lampoon building. I think you come in for an interview and there was like a window between the back room and the front. Jason like pointing at you and he's like, that's who you're going to interview. That's Dan. And I remember looking at you and I had never seen anyone that looked like you. You were in like a shiny silver suit 
And yeah, so the one, shiny I, suits, I the famous it, shiny yeah, suits. The, I, one, I thought it was weird because I was like, okay, like this is kind of like digital video. People are a bit more casual, jeans and t-shirts. He's in a suit. That's kind of weird. But then second, it wasn't just a normal suit. It was just something I'd never seen before. And I was like, all right, this guy's a character. And from where sure. I came from, I was just like, I'm from like traditional East Coast finance. So I was like starting to discount you in my head, but also realizing like I'm biased. I'm like, maybe this is like the people that we want. I've never encountered someone like this, sure, but maybe this sure. is the thinking and the pedigree that we want. So yeah, right. then I remember sitting with you like on the couches in the front and you're like mile a minute telling me your story. And I'm like kind of drinking from a fire hose. And I remember peppering you with questions. I don't even know what they were. But fast forward, we end up liking you and we hire you. All right, so we hire you at Big Frame. And this is in October 2012. What do you remember from those early days? What are you working on? I just remember being so excited, man. Like Sarah and you guys believing in me, especially. Again, I'm pretty good at knowing where things were going and just you guys sort of like, hey, great. Like music is the big thing on YouTube. Dan, figure it out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Figure out the opportunity. And it was just like... The belief in me was so amazing. And also, like, I'm coming from working at four years at Disney where, at least with my direct supervisors, I, I didn't feel like I was being treated as an adult. Everything was micromanaged. I, had to, I was essentially chained to my desk. And moving into a role where it just felt like anything was possible. And uh, I remember getting there and, like, there was really next to no musician signed at all, right? I think you guys hadn't signed them because you didn't know what to do with them. There were a handful. And then I was like, hey, I have, I have this idea for a music show. I knew that I would, like, need to get, a, like, a, a good song out of each of the talent that we'd have. So I was like, hey, I know all these amazing songwriters and producers who are who, who kind of know YouTube is next or like I'm telling them they're excited that I'm making the sleep and they're like, hey, YouTube's a thing. Like, what should we do? And so I just remember like Sarah and I and, and you talking about the show idea. And then like a week later, we had money from YouTube to do it. And so it was <laughs> yeah. like it was the biggest mindfuck because my entire career I had heard no. Literally, my 20s was hearing the word no and literally I can honestly say in the first month at Big Frame, I did more than in my 10 years at traditional. It was that quick. And I've really only heard, for the most part, heard yes ever since, you know, but it, it, it's just, you can do so much more in this space. There aren't the same gatekeepers at Disney. If you try something new and it doesn't work, you lose your job. This flip a switch where you're like, okay, within the first month at Big Frame, I'm hearing yes and money is behind it. So you're sort of thinking like, oh, if I'm a go-getter, like there's a lot more I can do here. I don't know that it was even that cognizant. It was more that I didn't really know which direction to go in. Like, you know, so I was like, okay, there's a lack of artist development. Like one, that show ended up taking up a lot more time. And you did that with Dave Days, right? Yeah. Called The Writing Room. You know, it's still up on YouTube, I think. You know, it was great. And we were all really happy with the songs and the shows and kind of got into artist development. And then while I was there, I sort of realized, hey, before I go out and start signing people, I need to understand how YouTube works, especially in music where SEO is so important. Because at that time, it was very much cover songs. And some of the biggest creators on the platform were doing cover songs, right? And so I needed to know how SEO worked. There was someone who was working at YouTube who sort of reverse engineered the algorithm and had done all this A-B testing to figure out how to grow channels. It was sort of on the, on the audience development side, and that was MatPat. He had his channel, which maybe I think was a couple hundred thousand subscribers, but I didn't care. No one really cared much or paid much mind about his own channel. But 
he and I very quickly hit it off because at that time, a lot of the managers, like more so than other MCNs, and the reason why I went with Big Frame, because I did get offers from all three, was you guys wanted to be more high touch with a smaller roster. Correct. Right. And so at that time, you guys actually were having some of the top talent on the platform sit down with Matt Pat or just Matt at that time, who would basically tell them like, hey, here's what you should be doing. And they wouldn't listen to him. But he was doing those one by one. And just to be clear, so Matthew Patrick, who's now a huge YouTuber that Dan manages, he was an employee at Big Frame early days. So he was a co-worker. Now he has maybe just under or close to 30 million across four channels. And it's just like one of the top channels on the, uh, on the platform, especially who's been able to do it for a decade and has probably one of the most challenging formats where it's like every video takes like at least a hundred or 200 hours in terms of scripting and post. And, you know, it, it, it shouldn't work, but through pure determination and really thoughtful approach, it like has worked. So anyways, you know, he, he's working there in quickly we hit it off because instead of just dropping the talent and him saying the same things over to talent that don't listen, I was like, hey, tell me, do a knowledge transfer to me. I want to know this stuff so that I can tell all my clients and be respectful of his time and also learn. I'm curious for myself. I want to know how does SEO work and what are things I can do to kind of grow my clients so that uh, we're providing value. And then once I know that, cool, let me go out and let me try and sign kind of the best and brightest. I thought that it would take me a while before I kind of like permeated at least the music scene on YouTube. And it was like by two or three months, based off of the work I was doing with one or two artists, I guess I should have realized they all know each other. They would all collab. They all talk to each other. So in a very short amount of time, I created a great name for myself as someone who's like, especially at that time, with the exception of Big Frame, it was scale, scale, scale. Just sign channels, get them in CMS, Comscore, Comscore. That was not Big Frame's approach. And so Big Frame really had a great reputation and I wanted to kind of help further perpetuate that. And so I was, not only was I helping people grow their channels, but I was setting them up with songwriters and, and producers, helping them figure out the different revenue streams. And one of the challenges at that time was the contracts that we had were more, at that time, standard MCN deals that only participated in ad revenue. And for most creators, that's fine, right? Because the, the ancillary revenues, the merch touring and, you know, brand deals and stuff weren't there or they were, they were just starting. On the music side, especially then, when it was confrontational with the publishers, the ad revenue is shared. So the CPMs and the ad revenue is a lot lower take home for the artist and in turn big frame however they were making a significant like significantly more and a lot more on downloads and streaming and so i sort of noticed hey i'm giving you advice and i'm helping you grow your channel but we're only participating in the essentially the least profitable revenue stream and so i sort of recognized hey at least in music if we're going to be and, and probably more broadly because we saw at that time Peak and some other platforms come up that weren't YouTube. Some of the talent was trying to do stuff on their own and sort of getting exploited. And I sort of realized, hey, and I think I kind of went to you and Sarah's like, hey, we might want to think about having our contracts be more robust in 360 to if we're going to have sort of this more boutique roster. Oh, I remember those conversations where we had this, like, I think a very short, minimal contract, only participated in AdSense off of YouTube. Then, a, yeah, a lot of push from the team saying, hey, we're doing all this work. We're impacting the 360 business of this talent. Like, one, the company needs to get paid for it. And also because you guys were thinking about as talent managers, how do you participate? What's your incentive? 
And look, contracts is a whole separate thing because I remember then the contract became like 12 pages and then people were saying, this is crazy. You got to make it simpler. No one's going to sign, but that's another tangent. So anyway, okay, so you identify this. We're like starting to rejigger the business. And yeah, you start building out our music vertical. It was going really well. I mean, we were getting the best talents. We just weren't monetizing the way that we wanted yet. And I was waiting on these management contracts to come in so that we could kind of get that. And again, that, that process took longer. We were basically building, we would have had all the best ones, right? Some of them had had deals that they signed before that were, hey, as soon as this term ends, I'm going to join. So I think this speaks to some mutual challenges, right? And frustration where we're trying to sort out the contracts, we're trying to sort out the business model, we're realizing at big frame, the music vertical is not directly making a lot of money relative to the cost that we're, that we're putting into it. Also, this is a point where I think there are some like headwinds facing the MCN industry. Some of, you know, we were having some challenges raising the needed capital and floating working capital. And so we had to make some changes. And I think, so there was a discussion around, okay, so probably going to have to shut down the music vertical and we're going to have to let Dan go. And, you know, there's something that you and, you and I talk about, like, you know, for the past 10 years. And so I remember being in the room when that conversation happens because it was between like me and you and Jason, I believe. And I was really the first kind of person to let go. It was kind of a growth stage. Yeah. And then I was probably kind of the first casualty, right? And to your credit, I was not surprised because maybe a month or so before you were like, hey, Dan, like, have you actually like looked at some of like the numbers in terms of what we're paying you and what you're bringing it in? And again, like that seems like blatantly obvious that I should have been, but like, I wasn't. I, I came from a role that was very administrative and I kept doing my kind of like what I knew. It wasn't clear to me that, oh, I'm actually responsible for, I should be for my own sort of P&L within this larger entity. In reflecting on that moment, and I don't, I don't actually think I've ever shared this before, but I think there's some realizations where one, I think I was learning a lot about the digital entertainment industry, right? I had a very traditional background, MBA, and there was a lot that I, like, I knew about business and I knew that revenue had to be more than cost to get the profit. But I think I didn't understand the nuances of how this industry worked, of how you recruit talent, how you invest in the team, and figuring out the right business model. And I think listening to like, our talent managers like yourself could have been something I did with more focus and intent. But I think it was a mutual value exchange. We're all learning. And I think this has helped set up a lot of talent managers for success of thinking about running a sustainable business, thinking about top line versus bottom line. And I know that there was some conversations where, yeah, I was giving clinics to you and some of the other members of the team, like, let's sketch out some numbers and see what works here. And it's, it's not working. How do we get there? And I feel that you've taken that to your new business, which has obviously been paid off in spades for you. I think me and the other kind of talent managers there, we kind of went in sort of wide-eyed where we we sort of knew the opportunity and we knew where, where we saw things were going. But I don't think any of us had the, had sort of run as kind of a business like that or thought through that kind of stuff. And it's just like you're trying to build the plane while you fly it. The other thing is you obviously know this and you hear some of the stories from me and others. It's really hard dealing with talent. It's really <laughs> hard dealing with talent. So, and especially then, you know, one thing that I don't hear kind of discussed as much, and I think like for someone like me who worked with traditional talent for a while, the digital talent's different, right? So for me, working in music as an AR guy, if I meet an artist, right, or, or a musician, at least back then, they've heard no a million times, right? And they understand the value of a team. On the YouTuber side, especially back then, especially early on, but still to this day now, especially with the new breed of creators who are really 
fucking savvy. A lot of them don't understand the value of, of a team that they've sort of hit at a time when everyone's sort of catering to them, especially the OG YouTubers who got in when you could really just like have deceptive thumbnails and stuff. Like they were not as receptive to advice that potentially they should have been. So in addition to figuring out how to make a, a business model of this thing as it's emerging, and especially in, you know, music is a lot harder in brand deals than beauty and other verticals. It was challenging and it's compounded by the job and working with talent is essentially to keep the unaccountable accountable. Look, I, I feel for you guys because I think you're working really hard dating over the past decade to figure out the business models that work for this new talent. And I think that that's still happening today. And different from traditional managers, this feeling of like, you're always on. So like the internet doesn't shut off. It's 24 seven. And you could be dealing with like a brand deal that goes awry in a different time zone and you're getting up at like 4 a.m. Or there's like a YouTube channel takedown that's impacting a brand deal or something like a video that's meaningful to talent. And you got to be up at, and that happens at midnight. Like you got to be on it with like a plan, a solution and a call into the platform. That's unique. And look, that's a separate podcast to talk about like all those stories. I think the collective big frame managers will write a book. But I will say, you know, the challenge that you guys face in managing digital talent for me, having run the talent organization and overseeing the talent managers, you know, that's also hard because at the top, we tried to bear the burden of that stress and give you guys the tools and empower you. And it was, and you guys demanded a lot because your talent demanded a lot. And it was, it was admittedly hard. But I think it was a beautiful journey to go through together and we learned a lot. Yeah. I can't believe it was only eight months because like I was only there eight months, which is like, Surprising, but man, in that eight months, the professional development that I had was so far beyond. And I even, I remember saying to Steve Raymond, who was the CEO of Big Frame at the, at, at the time, I remember telling him, I'll never work for a big company again if I can avoid it. Like, I like the startup culture. I like the fact that we're making it up and that we get to try new things and make mistakes and do stuff. You know, so far I haven't had to. So before we go on and we talk about your transition to long haul, I think we'd be remiss if we just didn't tell one story about the upstairs rap battle. And this, this still gets me to this day because you ended up as the winner. It pains me to this day. So tell the listeners a quick context for our rap battle. Yeah, you know, I don't know the origin of it. And I think there might have been two. I don't know. But I remember for some reason, I don't remember how it started. But I think we were just like, you know, we kind of throw friendly sort of like, you know, jabs back and forth. And somehow it kind of cultivated and, hey, we're going to do a rap battle. And I remember like <laughs> spending half the day writing out my stuff. I just remember the whole team was there and they were filming it. We got to find a video of it, of it somewhere. But yeah, those are rap battle. And I was victorious. I know I, I went at you for, uh, I, I remember one line, you had like a Ford that was giving you a bunch of challenges. And I, and I was kind of like, you know, because all you can afford is a piece of shit forward. And that line really like, you know, while not being the most creative, like really like hit with the audience. Yeah. I think, look, in rap battles, you just get a sense because like you said, everyone was watching, they were filming, crowds reacting. And you if you track the energy, you just know who's winning. And I remember, I think at the end with that line, the crowd just was like, it just felt like, all right, Dan Dan has won this. Like, I think we were like kind of yeah. <laughs> even throughout throwing these different jabs. I remember working on my script for like a couple weeks and I, I was frustrated because I was like, that line is, like, you know, that's not a special one. He just said Ford and a Ford in the same sentence. 
But like, it didn't matter. It was over. So look, massive credit to you. You're going against the music industry <laughs> professional. So <laughs> to be, it's, you know, there were no ghost writers, but it's to be expected. And so, Fair. you know, if Chaz or anyone else wants to come for the throne, they know where I'm at. So Dan, okay, after uh, this let go moment, what are you thinking about? What's next for you? When I took the gig, I knew it was going to be, you know, a roller coaster. I knew it was, it was riskier, right? But again, I sort of felt at worst, if it doesn't work out, at least I will presumably have positioned myself in the music industry as the YouTube guy. And because I know YouTube is going to be a big thing, I should be okay. I'll figure something out. And that's sort of exactly what happened, where as soon as I got let go, I kind of hit up all my people. In that eight months, people did start to notice. Some people. I was very fortunate that sort of like within the first month, I got two gigs doing consulting for two different startups that wanted to have, wanted to work with digital creators, particularly musicians, that actually paid more for a lot less work. So I kind of failed up, right, for the first time. Now it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm actually making more money than I was at Big Frame and I have way more free time. So like, what could I be doing? And then around that time is when Matt Pat crossed a million subscribers and, you know, he did, like, we hadn't talked in a while, but we, there was sort of that mutual respect, right? He's noticed that I was sort of doing more for talent and, and being sort of, you know, thoughtful. You weren't working with Matt Pat right after Big Frame. It took a bit. Yeah, yeah, it took a bit. I had the other gigs and then he hit me up and it was like, hey, can you help me do my first MCN deal? And I said, sure. And I helped him negotiate one. And I said, hey, is, is anyone bringing you brand deals? Like, your channel is pretty big at this point, you know? He's like, No. I was like, well, I, I've never really sold any. I think we did a handful of Big Frame. But again, in music, it was really tough. You know, I was like, well, let me try. One of the companies I was consulting for had an office in WeWork. And so despite all the WeWork craziness, I'll always be indebted to them. Um, and, <laughs> and so at that WeWork office, I met someone who worked for an agency that had got their start in radio, buys, and then were doing podcasts that was just starting to do YouTube. And so I gave them, you know, advice. I was like, hey, don't look at subscriber number. Look at average video views. And, you know, and so there was sort of like some trust built. And I said, hey, my buddy has a channel. Let's do a test with him. And so I negotiated a rate that I thought was fair, that Matt and I were really happy with. That video went up on like a Thursday night. And like Friday morning, I get a call from, from that person. Hey, Dan, we have three brands that want to book three videos each with, with Matt. You know, and I was like, great, you know, and so I, I negotiated a, a sort of like a percentage of that. And then it was like, whoa, I just booked like basically 10 videos for him. I'm making a pretty nice commission kind of going back and forth. I was like, this is great. But like, it's weird. Why are these only direct response companies? Why aren't the video game publishers sponsoring him? And so I kind of went to Matt. I said, hey, let's kind of make this official. I think there's something here. Let me start reaching out to video game publishers and trying to build those relationships. And so he's like, cool, let's do it. And again, the money that I had just booked him in a very short amount of time was extremely meaningful because he was just getting ad revenue. But the amounts that we were bringing in for these brand deals were a multiple of that, at least on a per video basis. And you're seeing that the commissions that you're earning are probably multiples of what you were getting big frame salary. Oh, yeah. So then I started doing kind of cold outreach to video game publishers. And I start building deeper relationships at, at, at YouTube. There was a deal for Matt and I to go to Texas and ride around in real World War II tanks because wow. they were recording the sound of the tanks for the game. I kind of looked at the deals and I was like, you know, the video game publishers are sponsoring these really flashy, like Devin Supertramp, 
you know, for example, for, is a YouTuber who was doing like parkour and very cinematic stuff. He was getting all the video game deals and he didn't necessarily have a gaming audience, but his content looked amazing. It still looks amazing, but it was very kind of flashy. So he would do like Assassin's Creed doing parkour. So I went to Matt. I said, your content's amazing. Your content's really smart and clever. We need a cool shit format. And so while we were in Texas, we basically filmed a teaser for essentially like a Mythbusters for gaming, right? Where, hey, you've played the game, but what would it be like in real life? Which is on brand for Matt. And so we, we, kind, of filmed it. we kind of filmed this teaser for it. We took that teaser and I started sending it out to, to publishers and anyone that I knew. And actually at Playlist, I met a guy who had the biggest agency for doing brand deals at the time, and probably still. And I was like, hey, you know, I, I, I rep this great channel. We, you've never worked with them. Like, let's fix that. Like, what do you have coming up? He's like, oh, I just, I have this new game coming out, you know, but we just committed all our budget to it. So I went to Matt. I said, hey, you're going to cover this game anyways, right? He's like, yeah. And I said, how about this? Let's do this video for free for them. You're going to do it anyways. I want them to see how much better your stuff performs than all the stuff they're paying for. And then they'll come back and they'll be in the regular, you'll be in the rotation for them. So we did exactly that. We gave them a free video. It got over 2 million views. And I've probably done, with zero exaggeration, like at least 500 deals with that agency across my roster, probably more. And certainly for Matt, like, you know, we're super close with those guys and we've done a ton of deals for them. Speaks to the long game. Right. Like do right by people. You're not looking at, oh, I'm foregoing revenue for this one deal that, you know, we're going to create a video for free. It's like you're, you're thinking about the next five to 10 years and all the other talent that you want to sign and you want to service. And it pays off in spades. I should have probably been thinking about all the other talent that I wanted to sign, but it was more so at that moment. It's like, hey, Matt's amazing. This is going well. Let's see how far this can take, or we can take this, right? And so that same company actually was the one who convinced uh, Ubisoft to have us do our first sort of pilot of that format where Matt trained with real LA SWAT on how to do a hostage rescue. You know, so we, we made our normal sort of margin and got to do this amazing sort of Mythbuster style video. And it was a departure for Matt. I sort of recognized that because his content's more voiceover, I sort of recognized, hey, you need to be on camera. You need to be more of a face. There's a lot of, there'll be a lot more opportunities if, if you're kind of more visually there. So we ended up doing that. It was hugely successful. It kind of put him in as a personality more so than just a voiceover. And we used that one and another pilot we did through a different Google initiative to sell that as a series to Google. And so now, again, I'm still kind of green in my business. I've been doing it. It's just me. Again, I was never more than a PA. And now I basically am an EP of a series for YouTube with my biggest client. And I basically have to make sure we're executing his creative vision properly because this is a huge opportunity for him. But he, he has to still run his channel as normal. So Dan, before we get into the rapid fire to wrap this up, tell us about who is long haul management today and where are you guys headed, Future Vision? At this point, we represent a lot of the top creators sort of at the intersection of gaming and sports and kind of like lifestyle, sneaker culture, streetwear, right? These are guys who are playing NBA 2K, playing Madden, and then, you know, Fortnite and, you know, whatever the sort of hot game is of the day, but they're also doing IRL, basketball or sports or challenges and, you know, interested in, in sort of commerce, be it sneaker culture, streetwear. And our job is to help people who've built a big following 
turn it into a diversified media business. So obviously they're making ad revenue, but kind of what else? So a lot of our time is spent doing these sort of transactional one-off brand deals. More and more, we try to make those more longer, uh, more meaningful partnerships. And that's been something we've had a lot of success with recently, getting hosting opportunities for our clients, voiceover work, helping them build out merch and product lines and, you know, figuring out ways for the ad revenue and the brand deals are great, but kind of what else? And figuring out like which ones. There's a lot of people who go and they just launch things. And we try to be really specific about, hey, every question starts with like, what's the value proposition for the audience, right? And so if we don't have that figured out, we don't do it. All right. And just one final question before getting into the rapid fire you brought this up when we were kind of prepping for the interview, but I think this is a good learning for the audience of doing things on your own terms. Give that quick spiel. I went off on my own. I've had my own management company since 2013. It's not the biggest. We haven't scaled. It's still a really small team. It does just a ton of volume. And especially this past year, like I'm one of the handful of like few independent gaming managers, especially like I've, for years, I've had a diverse roster of creators. And so the past year, I've had at least a dozen or so companies want to sort of acquire or hire me. And I've run it really conservatively. In my experience, most partnerships that I've done on the business side, if you get a quarter of what's promised, that's a win. So I'm always really skeptical about any potential partnership. And also like I've done things a bit untraditionally, like my first hire is my wife now. You know, we were dating before. I needed someone. She wanted to move in. And my sister worked for me. This is not sort of like, you know, people joke about the meme of like a family business. But like, for me, it is. And it's been it's been great. It's not without its challenges. But I want, I want to work with people that I really like and trust. And so, you know, now there's, you know, people that we've hired on that, that aren't sort of like directly connected to me that way. But I've seen a lot of people get into partnerships that they weren't happy with. And it's really hard to get out of. And so for me personally, I work a lot, I work hard, but I make a fantastic living doing what I want on my own terms. If I have a talent that's being really problematic, I can drop them and I don't have to answer to anyone. I have the scale. And also like, I've been doing this so fucking long like, you're not going to surprise me, hopefully, right? Like, like, I came from the music business, right? Like, I've seen some shady shit. And so there's all kinds of times where I are like, hey, this company wants to get into partnership with me. And it's like, I tell my clients, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come in. I'm going to push back on these things. This company's probably going to go to you and say that I'm blowing the deal for you and saying that I'm mismanaging you. And when they do, they show their cards that they're untrustworthy and that, like, you probably shouldn't be doing business with them. And, like, that shit happened two weeks ago. Hopefully, I have enough experience where you're not going to slip one past me. But more so, like, I make enough money now. I want to work with people that, I, that like, I fuck with, that are cool. You know, we talk about, like, a P&L. Like, my business is really profitable and really lean. I don't have to stress about it. I don't do projections. I don't have a number that I have to hit. I probably should have scaled this, especially like four or five years ago when gaming wasn't as competitive, but like I've done it on my own speed and it's worked for me. When COVID hit and everything paused, I was fine. I wasn't worried. We've gone through similar stuff with the apocalypse and stuff and things will dry up for a little bit, but like, you know, we'll be fine. I didn't cut anyone's salary. We were good. I don't need to be a billionaire to be happy. You have what you want and you have what you need. 
Yeah, I mean, I need a couple more bodies to kind of handle the the grind, and especially, you know, I've, you know, the other thing, I, my first kid, in, you know, in, in a couple months, I want to be able to step back a little bit, so I need a, a bigger team for that, and I, I don't want to be sort of executing brand deals when I'm when I'm seventy, right? So, but I've never raised any money. I, I've, the whole company's me. I've been fortunate that there's a few things I did in the past that have really been lucrative for me and have enabled me to kind of you know, use that money to fuel the the staffing and the and the growth, but it's, it's, it's a lean, profitable shop and that's fine. I don't need to make $20 million a year, you know, but if someone wants to pay me that, to, to be explicitly clear, I will sell for that amount. Based you know. on how your business is growing, maybe we'll get there. All right. I'm going to close it out with this. I want to give you some kudos, Dan, because I remember when, you know, Jason and I were making the decision that we were going to part ways with you back at Big Frame, right? This is May, 2013. I remember just like, we were asking ourselves like, God, he's got this fire, this energy, this love for like the music industry and music creators. But these things that are like fundamental to the business, they just seem to not be clicking. And we kept thinking like, is he going to get there? Is he not going to get there? I think at that moment, it was like, okay, we just have to part ways. Watching you over the past decade, Dan, the business owner and the operator that you have become, the amount of like how much trust that you have created with doing incredible deals for your brand partners, recruiting talent to your roster, putting a lot of money in their pocket, as well as into your pocket as well. It's been a beautiful thing to observe. And I've learned an incredible amount from you. It's very touching because we were in like the early days of this whole digital video game. And it was very unclear where we were going to come out. And I think that you've come out totally on top. It's beautiful. You inspire me. So I give you so many accolades and kudos. Job well done. Thanks, man. You know, I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I do. But also, like, even though I've had, a, you know, a, a fair amount of success, there's times where I doubt myself, too. Like, fuck, I was one of the first managers in gaming. If I would have dialed this thing up to 11 years ago, I would have had, like, I saw the Twitch thing happening and I didn't, and I chose, hey, I'm going to stay in kind of my, you know, my YouTube lane. I could have chosen to be like, hey, this is an opportunity. I need to, I need to play in that space. Let me, let me kind of grow and let me maybe not be so conservative and be a bit more aggressive. You know, even though I've had success, there's still times where I'm like, hey, I could have done more. But I found, at least in my career, there's always going to be someone who has a, a bigger business. There's always, especially in this space, there's going to be someone who has the hot talent of the day and that's fine. I don't need to rep everyone. And I'm happy just kind of like having my own shop. I'm not in the, there's a lot of other managers kind of in the press beating their chest every time they do a brand deal. That's not me. I'm kind of old school. The talent should kind of get the glory, you know, yeah. uh, but I obviously I appreciate the kudos, you know, from you, but I think for people out there who have a business or are thinking of doing it, like, you don't need to have the biggest business to be happy. And honestly, the people that I know that are that insanely driven are not happy people. But I think there's a lot to be said about like, look, like I work really hard. I fight like a motherfucker for my talent. But at the end of the day, it's like I still see my family and I'm able to help run the business for our future and our client's future. So, Dan, rapid fire. Here are the rules. I'm going to ask you six questions. These are short answers, like no more than a sentence. Even a couple words is great. Do you understand the rules? Uh, yes. Great. So let's power through these. Proudest life moment? Uh, that would probably be the Game Lab premiere with, with Matt Pat. Awesome. What do you want to do less of for the rest of 2021? Review contracts. Okay. What do you want to do more of? See my friends. <laughs> Play basketball. Got it. What uh, one to two things, think of descriptor words, drive your success? Tenacity. Never working for retail again. Got it. Last three. 
key advice for media execs going into the new year? Follow through is everything. A lot of people take meetings. It's fun to take meetings. What's not fun is actually doing the next steps and the follow-up emails. Um, and that's part of why I've done well is like, I do those. I like that. Well said. Any future startup ambitions? Yeah, there's stuff I want to do. Can you tease an idea? No. <laughs> okay. We'll save that for the next podcast. Dan, here's an easy one. How can people get in contact with you? I'm on the Twitter, you know, at Dan Levitt, or they can hit me up on LinkedIn. If they email me, I might not get to it for a bit, but business at uh, longhaulmgmt.com. And if you make it through the filter, uh, I will read it. Awesome. Dan, this was a, a real delight. Definitely blast from the past. Thanks for being on the show. And Chris, I listened to every one of these. I'm so, you know, I'm so excited. I, I mean, I'm a bit hurt that Chaz was asked first, but I'm happy to, <laughs> you know, I'm happy that we got to do this. Well, you know, look at Chaz as I wanted to warm up before the real big gun came in. Exactly. Yeah, he's the opener. Sure. <laughs> All right. Till next time. Thanks, buddy. Later. Oh, the interview was just so much fun. Dan was one of the first people I ever met in digital, and uh, it was just such a delight to go down memory lane with him. The memories of interviewing him, his shiny suit, all of our office shenanigans, and uh, just seeing his digital career blossom, it really puts a big smile on my face. All right. Lastly, we have a new podcast. It's called The Rockwater Roundup. Uh, we break down industry news in under 15 minutes. So me and my colleague, Andrew Cohen, we talk about many topics like the explosion in kids' screen time and new kids' business models, the rise of the audio wars, creator competitions like the Paul Mayweather fight, and so much more. Go check it out at rounduppodcast.com. All right. That's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Come Up is written and hosted by me, Chris Irwin, and is a production of Rockwater Industries. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe wherever you listen to our show. And if you really dig us, feel free to forward the Come Up to a friend. You can sign up for our company newsletter at wearerockwater.com forward slash newsletter. And you can follow us on Twitter at TCUPod. The Come Up is engineered by Daniel Turek. Music is by Devin Bryant. Logo and branding is by Kevin Zazali. And special thanks to Andrew Cohen and Mike Booth from the Rockwater team.